You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer, and joining me today is my co-host, Miranda Prynne. Hi, Miranda. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well. I know that you've been busy speaking with people about uh, a compelling topic. Uh, tell us tell us what it is and who you've been speaking to. Yeah, so this week we are considering how to make work in higher education more interesting, which is a, we hope, interesting subject to explore because many of us would consider it quite a personal thing. You know, what one person finds interesting, another person may find a total bore. I mm. can read endless books about the cosmos and astrophysics, but most of my friends think that's bizarre. We also see this at school, you know, certain subjects clearly appeal to some kids more than others. I mean, Sarah, was there a particular subject you always felt an affinity with? Yeah, I I don't think it's that bizarre. I mean, I've always been interested in languages and literature and and other cultures, but I did have a very close friend at college who studied maths and was just, or math, uh, it was just obsessed with math to the point that I, who I don't consider myself very good at math, but to the point that I was interested in math because she was so interested in math and her enthusiasm for the subject kind of bled into me and her passion for it and explaining kind of the philosophy and the beauty behind numbers and stuff was through her filter. I could totally see it, but looking at it on my own, it was just, you know, like looking at a foreign language or an alien life form or something to me. But I think that just speaks to perhaps what we're talking about today and imparting that passion uh, and that curiosity that one individual has to other people to make them interested in it. Absolutely. I mean, we all, I'm sure, remember the odd teacher who had that same ability to really impart their passion. And it's a real talent and skill if you can do that. And on that that note, we decided to speak to some academics who are studying this question about how to make things interesting and to find out, regardless of personal preferences, if there are some universal traits that can really foster interest Mm. that anyone could then go off and apply in their own work. First, however, we wanted to get a psychologist's take on what interesting really means in practice. So we asked Kurt Gray, an associate professor in psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and director of the Deepest Beliefs Lab and Center for the Science of Moral Understanding. We asked him to share his beginner's guide to what makes something interesting. I'm already interested just based on the name of his lab. Can't wait to hear the one. Interesting findings in science are counterintuitive. They go against our expectations. Most things in life are consistent with our expectations because our mind generally tracks how the world works and things that are consistent with our expectations are not interesting. It would be boring if I found that people love to snuggle with cuddly puppies instead of snakes and date attractive people instead of unattractive people. But imagine I ran a study where I found that people in fact love to snuggle with snakes instead of puppies and that they find beautiful people disgusting. That'd be interesting because it's not what you expect. It makes you reconsider what you think about the world. That being said, There are limits to being counterintuitive. 
interesting things are only minimally counterintuitive. They usually only conflict with a little bit of our intuitions. Let's think of physics. A counterintuitive argument in theoretical physics is that we live in a multiverse, right? Surrounded by lots of worlds, but they're a lot like this world, but just a little different. That argument is interesting because it's surprising, but still relatable. It's understandable enough for, let's say, Hollywood producers to make TV shows about multiverses. On the other hand, another argument in theoretical physics uh, is that reality is a 26-dimensional, unoriented bosonic string. <laughs> That's, it's counterintuitive in a sense, uh, but it's way too counterintuitive. It's too surprising. It's too hard to understand. And so that makes it not interesting. And so this minimal counterintuitiveness is the same reason that we find ghosts interesting and vampires interesting and werewolves interesting. Each of those things is basically a normal person, but just a little different. Ghosts are normal people, but they're dead and insubstantial. Vampires are normal people who drink blood and dislike garlic. And werewolves are normal people who turn into a wolf on the full moon and can be killed only by a silver bullet. But now, I'm at, now imagine I told you about a monster that uh, was all those things together. They were dead and insubstantial and drinks blood and dislikes garlic and turns into a wolf on the full moon and can be killed only by a silver bullet. And by the way, looks like your uncle and has one arm made of chocolate and the other arm made of nylon rope. It's just too much. It's too much interestingness to be interesting, right? And so in the quest to be interesting, you want to surprise people, but in a way that still makes sense overall. You want something to be different, but just a little bit different. I'm really struck by that contrast, that pinpoints of needing something to be unusual but still relatable, because I'm not sure I would have been able to identify those attributes. And yet now that he has said it, it actually seems strangely obvious if you think of news stories that really capture people or best-selling books and films. Yeah, totally. I think maybe because we're both journalists, this is kind of immediately where our mind goes to, to relate it to our training as journalists and just the, the question of what is news, what makes a news story. I mean, that's journalism 101. And in many ways, it is just something that's counterintuitive or that goes against an assumed public understanding of something. Um, it also made me think about um, some of the writing tips that we had in a previous episode of the podcast. Um, and the tip was just to, to make your sentence pace and length um, varied so that readers' brains are always stimulated and are always finding something new because it's, it's totally true. Our brain, perhaps it's an evolutionary thing, uh, just wants to take the path of least resistance. So we'll always kind of look for patterns and habits that it can just kind of go on to autopilot for but then whenever something comes along to break them out of that that's whenever it starts to get really intriguing yeah it's a very good point and of course you're right I think it is it's an efficiency thing for us but if you yeah. fall into too much of a rhythm you're just in autopilot yeah and all of that actually really chimes with what our ne next guest had to say Manuel Goyanes is an assistant professor in the Department of Media and Communication at Carlos III University in Madrid. And his main research focus is in the sociology of communication sciences and media management. 
But the focus of our chat was actually a research paper that he brought out in 2018. And this looked at the key attributes needed to make a research paper interesting. Hi, Manuel. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you for, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and, and contribute to this podcast. The reason we got you to join us today is because you've done some really interesting research around what needs to be done to make research interesting. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is why does research need to be interesting? Well, that's an important question. Um, Well, interestingness is an important trait of of research because it captures the attention of potential scholars and also uh, the general public. So we have two different audiences here. Peers, you know, uh, people like us, like social scientists and, and, and also the general public. So in my view, making interesting research is, is, is important for, for the community, for the, so, the social science, science community, uh, because it helps us to challenge taking for granted assumptions in, in a particular field and also help us to sort to break the lineality and standardization of, of some research product projects that you can see on, on, on different journals. So it represents another way of thinking and also represents a, a way of breaking the formulaic process, process of, of knowledge production, I think. Okay, so part of what you're saying there is that by making your research work interesting, whatever its focus may be, you will reach wider audiences and break out of the kind of focus exactly. interest mm-hmm. groups so to take that one step further you've mentioned the general public and then you've mentioned peers as two target audiences for a researcher when they are communicating their work are there any other sort of key target audiences that a researcher might want to focus on and in terms of adapting their say hooks what yes. differences might there be in in the way they present Yes, and as I mentioned, as you mentioned, the different dimensions uh, to make a research paper interesting were thought initially not to only raise the interest among scholars, among peers, but also to the general public, which are, in my opinion, not very attached to the mores, academic formalities, and also the style of writing of social science. So another way in order to boost, you know, the interesting, the interestness of, of those of, of the public that is not very attached to what we do is to make the style of the papers more easily readable, right? So um, the five dimensions that I outline, there are, for instance, continuity, foundational, new approach, quality and exemplarity, and insightful and practical, are very much intended to make more compelling and interesting papers, but also regardless the research approach and methodologies that some scholars use. So basically the idea of the paper is to foster the style and imagination of scholars and not to make the papers more interesting for the general audience because this is the, in my opinion, the ultimate consequence of applying such dimensions to the papers that we are doing. Can I jump in there? Because I, I, yeah, sure. I just want to clarify for the listeners. So you're now referring yeah. to a specific research paper that came out a few years ago. Yeah. And this was yeah. based on research of editorial boards and you yes. identified these five categories of interest. Exactly. Now, I assume you're about to talk us through them, but yeah, it would be great to yeah. get some practical examples of how a researcher could apply each of these categories to what they're doing. 
Sure. I mean, as I mentioned, there are in, in this paper that you mentioned that was published in Information Communication and Society uh, four years ago, I think, I outlined four, five different categories uh, in order to make a research paper more interesting. The first one and the most important one is continuity of research, which um, this paper basically challenges establishes theory and provide uh, counterintuitive findings. Also provide findings that go against traditional wisdoms and uh, last but not least, violates, violates expectations and take care for granted assumption. This is the first one, the most important one, counterintuitive. The second one is foundational and this uh, studies are classical studies that open up new avenues of research, uh, providing, for instance, the tenets of a research area, and also offers the first empirical evidence of a phenomenon, right? Are the, the, the canonical studies in a particular field, so to say, right? The third approach that I categorize is the new approach. And in these papers provide new ways of understanding, for instance, digital phenomena, integrates multiple perspectives from causing fields, in, in our case, since we are in communication, for instance, from politi political science or psychology, and also re-examines a classical theory, theory in a new and different way, right? Um, the fourth category that I outlined in this paper is quality and exemplarity. And in, in my opinion, this represents the empirical research excellent rigor and rationality in its different shapes, such as strong and robust methodology, on-point literature review, sufficient sample of subjects, rigor of findings and arguments, new methodological, methodological proposals, and cross-national comparisons. While the fifth and final category that I outline is insightful and practical, and this, especially for qualitative studies, are those which are simply written and compelling, and those scholarships that provides good description and rich cases, offer clear descriptions of findings, and addresses clearly the practical implications of, of results. So these are the five different dimensions that I outlined and, and I think are good uh, starting point in order to make our papers from the community of communication scholarship more interesting. So you've outlined those beautifully. How easy is it for someone to work all five of those elements into a research paper? Would you say it's best to maybe focus on one element and work towards achieving that? Yeah, so, well, it's, it's difficult, of course, because if you follow the standards of, of communication research, it's, it's challenging, I mean, if you in, uh, apply some of these of these categories, but ultimately you have to do it in order to make them more interesting. For for instance, contributive uh, research might be more easily done. For instance, if you have qualitative data, right? So uh, because it ensures you more, you have more room for for imagination and, and and sort to adapt your empirical data, your qualitative data to um, the concept. Or, or construct that you want to provide in your paper. While as for foundational, of course, this is even much more difficult because uh, in order to fund a particular research line, uh, you have to have obviously a good idea and also followers that sort to say, follow up with, with the main idea that you had in, in the past. While for new approach, of course, you have to have a good command of the theories, you know, uh, the theories in causing fields. And, and for that, you have to read a lot. Right? and also apply all of these theories to the phenomena that you want to study in your particular field. Uh, as for quality and exemplarity, uh, I think you know, the, the research approach that could be a, 
applicable, applicable more easily, it could be maybe the quantitative one because you have some standard process to follow, a particular process in order to gather data, analyze data, and then report the statistical analysis. So is this category exemplifies, in my, in my opinion, uh, the rational or of quantitative research. So many scholars could be uh, interested on that. And I think it's, it's what most of, of the scholarship publishing nowadays in communication research is, is all about. While insightful and practical, um, it's difficult not because the data, because it's qualitative, most of the papers that I um, discover as insightful and practical, but you know the way this data is 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 reported. You know the the surprise and imagination that uh, this paper that that these papers have. So it's a combination of rigor, but also uh, imagination, style, and surprise. Yeah, and understanding how your research is being carried out, the kind of nature of exactly. the research, and therefore which one of these is going to align with it best. I come back to this point about target audiences, because obviously, if you are writing for your peers in an academic journal, you want to make it interesting. But it is a bit different to trying to, for instance, reach the public or get your research considered as part of, kind of policy making or work yeah. with the media, mainstream media. So, I mean, based on just your experience as a researcher, how much do you adapt the information you're putting out? Do you literally rewrite completely different versions of your findings? Or how do you kind of handle the fact you're having to adapt what makes it interesting for these different Yeah, yeah good, good question. I always start with, um, with a concept, right? With an idea that I would like to see uh, in, in reality and then conversate with the empirical data that I have. So instead of looking for something in the data, I just come with my own ideas or what, I, what, what I'm gonna find. And then I try to adapt my, my feelings and, and, and my ideas to what the empirical data can tell me. So it's a, a sort of a conversation between my a priori conceptualizations of particular phenomena, and then try to conversate with the people or with, with the communities or with the uh, organizations that, that I am in, uh, in order to to come up with something that is alternative or sort of say challenge taking for granted assumptions of a particular field. So I don't want to provide any, or I don't want to provide a particular idea that has, that, that supports what I already know. I want to provide an alternative idea that sort of say challenge taking for granted assumptions that I, I already identify in a particular field, right? Yeah, brilliant, which comes back to your point about counterintuitive research is going to pique people's interest. Um, now, I know one of your big focuses is around communications. This obviously overlaps a lot with what we're talking about, because in the end it is finding ways to communicate that gets people to listen. Based on your more recent research, because I realise the particular paper we're talking about is, is four years old now, is there anything you would update or new insights that you've gained into sort of how yeah. best to communicate work uh, not really. I mean, the main dimensions that I outlined four years ago, I think, are important to understand um, the, how, how the field is, is, is developing nowadays. So, um, um, well, a good, stand, a, good, a good starting point to those interested in making their papers interesting is first, I think, uh, reading the paper and, and, and perhaps 
go over the main dimensions that I that I outline and that I, that I already defined here in the podcast. And I, so I think that having a good command of the main theories in communication, but also, as I mentioned, in, in related fields, in coaching fields that are associ associated to communication, such as political science or psychology, are important, you know, to refresh your mind and also uh, come up with, with different theories or with different ways of conceptualizing communication phenomena, right? So uh, first, having a good command of the main theories. And also I think that having a good knowledge of both quantitative and qualitative research might also help to understand social phenomena and to come up with different ideas that sort of say challenge taking for granted assumptions, right? So, yeah. but most of all, I think, um, what we need as, as a community in order to provide more interesting and surprising findings is to be critical, right? And challenging the assumptions of particular fields of knowledge providing, in my opinion, alternative solutions to establish research questions based on empirical research. So we, the, the, main, the main ambition of this paper is not to um, persuade people to say whatever they want based on no support, right? So we have to have good empirical evidence and then adapt this empirical evidence to, to, to what is already known and to provide as much as alternatives as, as we can with the data that we have but always based on really empirical basis. Of course, because I can see there would be a temptation to almost make a statement that's controversial purely exactly. to get exactly. action, and that goes against the sort of fundamentals of academic rigour. Exactly. We need to end it here, sadly, but I'd just like to end it with asking what your top tip would be for enhancing your own interest in your academic work and avoiding feeling a bit stale or finding yourself worn down? Uh, yes, it might be repetitive, but I think it's, it's, it's one of, of the advice that will, a piece of advice that will give to, especially those younger scholars interested in, in publishing in, in good journals and also interesting research. Uh, first, first and foremost, I think um, having a good knowledge of, of, of the main theories of the global conversation, of the global conversation that are now in communication or in other coaching fields, and also having a good knowledge also of the main Morse styles and, and methods that are um, paradigmatic in, in communication research, whether they are quantitative or qualitative. Uh, in my view, you know, focusing focusing your, your research in one, in one just in just one. A particular methodology for me is, is not too interesting. Uh, it's boring for me. So I would like to have different methods in order to answer different questions and, and hypotheses that I might have. So be diverse, so to say, and, and multidisciplinary in, in, in your research questions and also in the way you address such research questions is the potential way out to, to make your papers more interesting and also appeal not only scholars, but also the general public. Yeah, that's great advice. I think variety is the spice of life. <laughs> um, so really the message there is the, the more you learn and the more areas you engage with, the more interesting it will be for you and everyone else, which is a good note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking to you. There's absolutely loads of very practical, applicable advice there for any researchers listening. Oh yeah, thank, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to, to share my findings with, with the audience. Many thanks.
Okay, so really good points there from Manuel. Uh, a couple of things that stood out for me was um, about halfway through when he was talking about just the way that you present your research and to really consider the imagination style and bringing in an element of surprise, even if it is for more traditional uh, channels of scholarly communication, like a journal article or a, a chapter. I think that's really a, a good point and perhaps something that people consider a bit less. I know that we've covered a few research papers in the past on timeshigherededucation.com and our news coverage about the power of a really good journal article title. Now, of course, this can obviously be taken to the extreme and look absolutely ridiculous, but it does speak to that element of surprise that's needed even for scholarship readers. The other thing that I also really liked about what Manuel said is that word counterintuitive, which is something that Kurt mentioned as well, and counterintuitive material and how important that is in um, academic research. Uh, and I liked how he described it like a conversation whenever he's going to work with his qualitative data or quantitative data, that he really goes in with this idea, but then it's the data, that conversation with the data that really pulls out and teases out any sort of counterintuitive conclusions that he can make. Yeah, and he also actually drew from that a salient point, which is that if researchers are writing their academic papers in such a way that they are really drawing out the interesting points, then it, it shouldn't necessarily be necessary for them to be rewriting for different audiences because it should just be innately interesting. I mean, mm. I slightly pressed him on that point because, of course, I think there will always be a need for researchers to slightly refocus depending on who they're targeting with a piece of writing. But it, it is true that things like counterintuitiveness would pique the interest of anyone. The other piece of advice that I really liked from Manuel was what he concluded with, which was this idea that the more you learn and broaden and deepen your knowledge, the more you will have to draw on to create more sort of varied and interesting work. And I just feel that's something people across all sectors could probably take on board. Yeah, of course. And I think the the point about interdisciplinarity that he speaks about at the end, I mean, that is definitely a trend within academia, which makes sense. I mean, we're not, the world is not organized in the silos of, of higher education and universities. So it totally makes sense that if you broaden and deepen your focus of your research, then you'll just deepen your knowledge of your subject matter and, and the truth that you're seeking. Yeah, and it can help inform what is going to be counterintuitive and what is going to kind of go against yeah. the brain if you have that greater foundation of knowledge. Mm. It also actually it brings us on really nicely to teaching and learning, which is what our next interview focused on, because there's a huge body of research to show that when students are more excited and engaged by a topic, they will learn more. And that means there is an imperative upon teachers to make their classes, in inverted commas, interesting. So. I was keen to find out if there are any kind of universal strategies that can help them do this. And mm -hmm. that is what I asked our final guest, Emily Corwin Renner. Emily is a research scientist at the University of Tübingen's Hector Research Institute of Education Sciences and Psychology. And she's currently researching motivation in learning. So had some very helpful insight for any teachers listening. Hi, Emily. Great to have you on the podcast. Now, I believe your current research focuses on self-regulation strategies that can make work more interesting. Is that right? Yes, particularly how students can make 
working on uh, tasks for their studies more interest. Well, that's perfect for what we are here to discuss today, which is all around this idea of how to make all work within the higher education sector, within academia, whether that is teaching, research and so on, more in inverted commas, interesting. Mm -hmm. So before we delve into the detail of that, could we start with your interpretation of what interesting actually means, particularly in the context of teaching? Yeah, so I'd start with the context of learning. Interesting tends to, so interest tends to arise either when people are curious about something or when they already have some kind of established interest and it connects to something that they already feel is interesting. So in the context of teaching, generally um, an instructor would want to make something more interesting by evoking curiosity. Um, And that can often be done by making people aware of what they don't know yet and how it connects to what they already know. So like, in your everyday life, you experience, you know, that it rains sometimes and the water droplets are so big. And then an earth science instructor might then go into details about the physical properties of why uh, the water droplets are such that they are. So the interest is about kind of making that connection and uh, sparking that curiosity. Yeah, brilliant. So it's really about setting the learning, the way you've described that brilliantly with the rain, I mean, that's contextualizing the learning in a way that any student could relate to from their personal experience of the world and their lives. Mm -hmm. Based on your actual research, which you've outlined for us, I mean, how big a role do you think making things interesting, how big a role does this, does it play in the learning process? And is learning still possible when students find a subject very boring? So I would say the minimal requirement for learning is that you're even paying attention and engaging with the material. And there, we all know about circumstances where students memorize something because they're very determined, but they're not very interested in material. And that can work in the short run. Uh, studies have shown, but uh, in the long run, it tends to be more effective for students to remember things um, and want to engage with a subject in the future if they're experiencing interest. That makes sense. Just drawing on your research, when you talk about self-regulation strategies that invoke curiosity and and the various other attributes that that make something interesting, could you talk us through what these self-regulation strategies are? and perhaps about how this could be applied in practice for a university teacher. Yeah, so I'm particularly studying self-regulation strategies that focus on making tasks more interesting. You can also regulate yourself by putting pressure on yourself, say, I have to do this before I can do what I want or something. But to make tasks more interesting, there's also plenty of great strategies. And some students already use some of them. So for example, one strategy is um, if you have something to read, that before you read the text, you come up with some questions that you hope the text might answer. And then you're kind of hoping uh, and thinking about those questions as you read the text that can kind of evoke this curiosity again. Or another example that's not um, so much based on curiosity is if a student was solving some kind of mathematical or programming uh, exercises um, for 
university and they um, can make it into a kind of a game by giving themselves points for each time when they make some progress at getting closer to the solution, for example. And those are just two examples of things that students on their own can do to kind of tweak the tasks that they're given to make them a little bit more fun or interesting. So one thing that instructors can do is both to tell students about how to use such interest uh, enhancing strategies that they work and encourage students to ask themselves, you know, how is this similar to something that I really like to do? And how could I make it more similar to that thing that I enjoy doing already? Um, and another thing that uh, instructors can take away from this is to just kind of think about, you know, what could I do to change this assignment or something that might make it a little bit more interesting or engaging? Yeah, so instructors can almost guide students to mm -hmm. realize what they can do themselves to make it more interesting. Yes. Um, and then, how big an impact do different personality types play, or indeed, you know, social, cultural backgrounds play in what people find interesting? Yeah, so I think personality mainly affects how interested people are in things in general. Some people just more curious than others. As far as differences that uh, affect what people tend to be interested in, I think a lot of it comes from experience. But for example, that doesn't mean that an instructor cannot get um, many different students with varied experiences to be curious and engaged to learn about the same topic. Um, for example, people, someone who wants to understand psychology or someone who wants to understand political science, such students will all take statistics courses because they need to understand statistics in order to um, think about the topics that they want to think about. So whenever we want to learn something new, it's because it relates to something we already care about and, you know, think is interesting or important. So I think instructor can help students with various interests by finding out more what the interests are of their students, what they want to learn from the class. And with a small class, that's obviously a lot easier than with a large class. In a small class, I think that can be a very helpful strategy. So helping each individual student kind of make their own links between yes. one subject that they're all studying, but they might each make a different link with what they personally find interesting or what their personal motivation is for doing it. Exactly. Brilliant. I mean, that sort of answers the question that I wanted to ask, which was around how how teachers could try and make one subject universally interesting for vastly different students. But are there any strategies and approaches you'd pick out which are effective in generally piquing the interest of all people? One kind of strategy that tends to work for most people is to um, bring in kind of a story element. So for example, in scientific subjects, talking about what it was like to discover the phenomena and what it meant for people at the time and, you know, that experience, that human experience. Basically, there's a way to connect any subject to human experiences and stories, and that tends to capture students' attention uh, quite consistently.
yeah the human desire for stories is <laughs> a very that is a very universal trait so to end i'd just like to ask what is your top tip for university tutors to motivate their students i think it's to think about the relevance of the material to the students and how you can show the relevance either by connecting it to their everyday life and experiences or how they can use the information in their professional or personal life, but also um, telling stories about how other people have experienced uh, that material. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Emily. There's absolutely loads of really helpful practical tips there for anyone in the teaching profession. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's a very useful point from Emily to consider the relevance of what is being taught to students' daily lives and experiences. Where I can see that could get quite complicated is with you know diverse student groups. This is going to vary a lot between individuals. So yeah, yeah. I suppose that is where the skill of a good teacher is to find some more universal themes that might be relatable for you know, all their students, Mm. or indeed bring in elements of storytelling as a way to connect the subject matter to human experience. Yeah, I really like her her storytelling suggestion. Um, I think narrative storytelling is always a compelling way to communicate, whether it's in a classroom or your academic research or in a presentation or at a conference or at a dinner party, whatever. We know that this is a tried and true way that humans really engage with what you're saying. So, yeah, I'm really glad that she suggested that. And back to your other point, Miranda, about um, it potentially being complicated with diverse students who have different backgrounds catering to each individual's backgrounds. I also really liked her tip about how instructors can essentially teach students to help themselves on how to be curious. It's kind of so it's not just only on the teachers. It's really helping the students learn how to learn, which is what we hear all the time whenever we speak to people but also kind of giving a bit of the heavy lifting over to the students so that they really become active participants and in their own curiosity and their own work to find something interesting. Yeah, of course. And it enables them to personalize their own learning in a way that a teacher never could. Right. Well, that's it from us this week. We hope you found this interesting. (laughs) We will spare you the outtakes of this podcast where we've had to stop ourselves from saying the word interesting all the time. Whenever you talk about this topic, you realize just how much we rely on that one word. I think we maybe need to go back and expand our vocabulary a little bit to talk about various compelling, interesting topics. Engaging. (laughs) Engaging. There's another one. But we hope you did find this information useful and you can also find loads more advice uh, from your colleagues and peers around the world on our Spotlight collection of resources exploring the topic of how to make your teaching interesting on THE campus. That's timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. And as always, if there's anything you'd like us to cover on the THE podcast, or if you'd like to be a guest on the THE podcast, please do get in touch with me, sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.